0: Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verses 13 through 16. and Follow along, if you would, as I read them. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As we've seen in the series, in the Beatitudes, Jesus has set forth the character of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a follower of Jesus. Now, in these verses, 13 through 16, Jesus sets forth our function, or mission, that is, who we are supposed to be in the world. To express this mission, he has used two metaphors, that of salt and light, two indispensable provisions or commodities, two common commodities. These are things which we need, yet they are easily found. They're fairly common. As we saw last Sunday, Jesus does not command his followers to be salt and to be light. He doesn't say you are to be salt and light. He doesn't say you ought to be or you are to become salt and light. He makes a declaration, a statement, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. As I mentioned this last Sunday, that one writer has contrasted the Christian ethic that we are to become what we are Versus other religious ethics which say you should become what you ought to be. You should strive to be what you ought to be. And Jesus says this is what you are. We see in Jesus' teaching that what we have, we have from God from the beginning. Not at the end. It isn't because we've done something good. It is because of God's grace that at the beginning he has given that grace. And we become salt and light. We are salt and light. So what we have is a declaration, not a command. Last Sunday, and just to review, I suggested four general observations before we look into it uh, today. The first is that followers of Jesus are seen as fundamentally different from the world. Jesus speaks of two distinct communities. On the one hand, you have the earth or the world. On the other hand, you have salt and light. These communities have a relationship based on their distinctiveness, um, but they are very different. And we shouldn't be surprised at this because we've looked at the eight Beatitudes Um, in which we see that the call of Jesus is contrary to almost everything that we hear from the world. What makes a disciple or a follower of Jesus so different? What sets that person apart? It is the grace of God. It is the gift, the wholeness that he gives us at the beginning when he called us. It isn't anything that we deserve and it isn't anything similar to what we were it is grace that takes us from the world and makes us salt and light. How else would we become salt or light? Um, By the way, when I speak of a disciple being fundamentally different I'm referring to the essence, not the form. And this is really important because I think a lot of people have fallen into the trap of thinking that Christians are to look different than the world. Um, That we how we are as people, the form is different. It isn't that at all. If you look at water, for example, H2O, in its liquid form, it's water, in its solid form, it is ice, in its gaseous form, it is steam, still water. And we would not expect, we should not expect that Christians of all times should look exactly the same, that the form should be exactly the same. Uh, That isn't the case. Um, And I think that's really important because a lot of people, and I know the tradition I grew up in, Christians were supposed to look a particular way, a particular clothing style, hairstyle. You know, this is what a Christian, that's the form. Jesus isn't talking about the form, but the substance. Now, you may contaminate water, okay, whether it's ice or steam or liquid, it's still water. Salt and what it salts are different in terms of essence, Light and what it lightens or enlightens are also different. Those who are the followers of Jesus are to be different than the world. And yet I think oftentimes we find that that's simply not the case. And we'll see that later on. The second general observation is that a follower of Jesus is not only fundamentally different from the world, but is always to be in contact with the world. See, it would be very enticing and it's very tempting to think, well, if I'm different from the world, then I'm going, I'm going to be separate from the world. I will separate myself. And some people use the word separation. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So there is a distinction, and yet there is to be a connection. There is to be contact. For salt to have effect, it must, in fact, come in contact with the thing it is to impact. And for light to enlighten something, it must not be hidden. In the same way, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, are always to be in contact with the world. Um, Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So we are different, but always in contact with. The third general observation is that the world is presented as a place that lacks salt and lacks light. And we are the disciples of Jesus. We are to be salt and light. And the fourth observation is that we are followers of Jesus for the good of others. It isn't simply, oh, look, we have the grace of God. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? It is, in fact, for the benefit of others. So let's look at salt and let's look at light. As we continue the passage, I think we may come into a difficulty, because it seems clear what light does. Light brings light, it enlightens, but what does salt do? Well, salt has a number of functions, um, and we find it in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm tripping up a bit here because I think the tendency is when we think of, of this passage is say, like, oh I know what salt is, I know what salt does. Almost as much as to say I don't need scripture for me to understand what Jesus is saying here and that simply is not the case. We find in scripture that salt is in fact a flavoring. We know that but it is confirmed in scripture. The question is, are we going to look to scripture, or are we going to look to our own experience? I mentioned uh, the other Sunday, uh, the passage in Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea is neither hot nor cold. It's lukewarm, and so we think, well, I know cold water, hot water. But when you look at the history, we see "Oh, there there's a town that had fresh cold water, another one that had hot springs, Laodicea was in the middle, had neither. So it isn't simply our own experience, our own knowledge that tells us what's being said. So, if we read in scripture that, in fact, tasteless food has no salt, that confirms our experience. Okay? But the second thing we see is that salt was used in the incense that was to be burned in the tabernacle. After listing the ingredients, that the recipe, if you wish, for making incense for worship, God told Moses it is to be salted and pure and sacred. The ESV has seasoned with salt pure and holy which points that to the fact that salt represents some purity. In 2nd Kings chapter 2 we have the story of Elisha who is informed about a spring of water that has bad water and what Elisha tells him is bring me a bowl of salt he pours the salt into the spring and then the water becomes pure. It now has good water. So it is to be used, well it is seen in the context of purity it is used in incense Thirdly, salt was to be used in all sacrifices. All offerings in the Mosaic system were to be seasoned with salt. This is what we find in Leviticus 2. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of the grain offerings and salt to all your offerings. That as people gave sacrificially, as they gave to God, salt was to be a part of that. And lastly, and I just read it in Leviticus 2, salt was a sign of the covenant. Um, To be honest, this is only mentioned three places in scripture, and it isn't completely clear what is being said, except for this, that somehow between God and his people there is what is called a covenant of salt. Um, Let me read to you from Leviticus 18. The Lord spoke of an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. And then centuries later, uh, King Abijah of Judah, the northern kingdom, was speaking, or the southern kingdom, was speaking to the people of the northern kingdom. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? whatever this means, it is a sign of a covenant between God and His people. So it seasons food, it is an ingredient, an incense that is to be burned in worship before God, it is something that is to be burned with all the offerings, the sacrifices, and it is a sign of the covenant. Now some commentators have suggested What salt is intended for here is that it preserves, that you can salt food and it it preserves, it prevents decay, it combats deterioration. Well, that's all true, uh, but this is not what Jesus is saying. How do I know that? Well, first of all, salt is never described that way in scripture. And secondly, historically, there is no evidence that the Jews ever used salt as a preservative. That's something that comes later or it's in other cultures. But the Jews did not use salt as a preservative. So I don't think Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, we are going to preserve things in a culture. Many would argue that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Others have said that salt is something that can sting or hurt. If you have a cut, and we have the expression rubbing salt in the wound. Uh, Martin Luther took this view. Christ has commanded the salt to be sharp and continually caustic. If you know anything about Martin Luther, that sort of makes sense. If you want to preach the gospel and help people, you must be sharp and rub salt into their wounds. I don't disagree with him, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling his listeners, you are the people of God. You are the covenant people of God, and you are to make a difference. How does salt make a difference? Well, it has the quality of saltiness, a distinctive quality. Jesus speaks of losing that distinctiveness, um, losing that quality of saltiness. How does salt lose its saltiness? Well, it can be contaminated with impurities or it can simply be washed away. The people that Jesus was speaking to knew of the Dead Sea to the south, which was surrounded by a white powder that looked like salt but was so contaminated that it was useless. And the picture that Jesus has in mind is that if the followers of Jesus lose their saltiness, the result is that they are not fundamentally different from the the world. You might say, that's good, that's good, fine, fine. But what is the nature of Christian saltiness? If we are to be salt, what does that mean? What is it that marks us as unique? that may be, in fact, contaminated or washed away, making us useless. Our saltiness is found in the qualities mentioned in the eight Beatitudes. That is what makes us salt. That we are poor in spirit, that we mourn, that we are meek, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. It's this that marks us as fundamentally different as the followers of Jesus. And without those qualities, we have lost our saltiness. And yet, I would argue that the church today is not very salty. That, in fact, in trying to fulfill its function or its mission, it has set aside its character or its quality. One could argue that the mission has, in fact, replaced character. So, many people tell the world it needs Christ, at the same time they seek to be self-reliant. The Church tells the world that sin is wrong and responsible for so many ills, but do we mourn for the sins and for the destruction that sin has brought? We call the world to bow before Christ to be humble, and yet we seek to be self-assertive and not humble. We tell the world that it hungers for the wrong things, and yet do we not hunger for the exact same things? We may say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but is that what we are seeking? I think we may be in danger of losing our saltiness. By the way, one of the great things about salt that we take for granted is its hiddenness. That is, the work that it does is hidden or unseen. So if, uh, when, Elisha threw the salt into the water, the salt disappears, but it affects the water, it makes it pure. It's included in with the ingredients of incense. It disappears into the mix, if you wish, into the batch. You don't need to see salt in order to enjoy its benefits. It is hidden. And that's why I think of the two metaphors, salt and light. Many Christians prefer the light metaphor because that's something you can see, whereas salt is something that is hidden. Something you cannot see. Light is visible, uh, objective, one might even say quantitative results, light candles. You know, you can tell how bright something is. Uh, And so the church today, I think, chooses to speak of numbers, whether it be money or people. It speaks of buildings. It speaks of exposure. But what about quality? What about character? Salt, in its impact, is hidden we are told that we are the people of God we are the salt of the earth it is a statement as I said it's a declaration it's not a command how do we get saltiness we go back to the beginning whether you are calling out to God for the first time or for the millionth time blessed are the poor in spirit we must all begin at the same place moment by moment We should acknowledge and confess our total inability to do what is right apart from God. We are poor. And in a a year, we will still be poor. And in 10 years, we'll still be poor. And if we're still around in 50 years, we'll still be poor. We will always be in need of God's grace. The second metaphor is light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We come to see that the world, in fact, is in darkness. And we could argue, well, okay, no more elaboration is necessary. But I think it's necessary for us to recognize that if God is the light, then everything that stands in opposition to him is darkness. That if you walk away from the light, then you, in fact, are in darkness. Throughout scripture, we read of God's light. In Job 29, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light, I walk through darkness. And then David in Psalm 4, let the light of your face shine upon us. And then the Levitical blessing, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God as light guides us, he shows his favor to us, he restores us, he revives us, he saves us, he gives us knowledge. Paul told the Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See? Fine, that's, that's fine, but we are the followers of Jesus, how are we to be light? Well, in the chapter before the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 4, we read about Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is who Jesus is. And so when Jesus says that we are the light of the world, it has roots in who he is. Because he is light and we are his followers, then we have light as well. He has redeemed us to carry on his work and to be light. It's interesting that what Jesus points to in the function of light is unlike salt, it is not to be hidden. It is not hidden just as a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand. In those days, a terracotta lamp, usually pretty flat, a bowl with a wick, it was lit and then it was put in a place where it could give the most light throughout the house. We have electricity, but occasionally when the lights go out and we light candles We then sort of learn to be strategic, and where do you put the candle where it has the most benefit? We are a city on a hill. Again, I think this refers to God's people as a new people, the new Israel, a new covenant people. This is from Micah 3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is what Jesus speaks of when he speaks of a city on a hill. That which we are cannot be hidden. And now we come to verse number 16. And this is the only command in this passage. In verses 13 through 16. And by the way, just a side note, personal note. My parents were missionaries. And the missionary group we were with had a, a collection of pictures of the missionaries. And it had you know the names of all the children. And then on the back it would have the verse. That was the verse for each family. And every morning at breakfast, my dad would pick out one. And they were in a little container and pick out one and we would pray for that family. Well, the one for the Woods family had Matthew 5:16 as our verse. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You might be saying, wait a minute, Damon, I've read ahead. I've read ahead to chapter six. And in chapter six, Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. But here, Jesus calls on his followers to let their, sh- their light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Seems to be a contradiction. I think we tend to favor, by the way, the Matthew 6 passage, the idea of not doing your good deeds before people, because we prefer religion to be a very private matter. We don't like it to be public. And when we come to verse number 16 here in our passage, it makes us a bit uncomfortable because it's, it's a bit too public- Uh, for our comfort. So which is it? Are we to do our good deeds before people? Are we not to do our acts of righteousness before men? There is no contradiction. The issue is not public versus private. The issue is motive. Why are you doing what you do? Why does Jesus call his followers to let their light shine before men? That they may praise your Father in heaven. In chapter 6, if you look at the first two verses, be careful not to be seen, or not, let me start over, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. That's the motive. You want to be seen by people. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. There is the motivation. The issue is not the audience, interestingly enough. Um, Should I do this when people are watching, or should I wait till they're not watching? Not the issue, not the issue at all. It is, why are you doing it? Is it that God may be glorified, or that you may, in fact, be honored by men? The Lord has called us to be his people, and we have a specific mission or function in mind. We are his disciples. He has called us. The problem is, I think, that we have put the cart before the horse. We have put mission first rather than character. We, in fact, are s- the Beatitudes come first. I, I don't know if you remember when I began this series, I said that I think I would have put them secondary. No, no, they come first. This is who we are supposed to be. This defines us and then we can talk about our mission or our function. What's interesting is that today people tend to focus on mission, they downplay character, and they don't see the two as being connected. Mission becomes optional, but oftentimes it becomes more important than character. So it doesn't matter if you are poor in spirit as long as you're sharing the gospel. It doesn't matter if you mourn over sin in your own life, and the lives of others, as long as you're witnessing. It doesn't matter if you are meek, as long as you are doing mission work. We've really mixed things up. We are to have this character. This is who we are. And as a result of that, these things flow out. We are salt and we are light. We aren't supposed to sit there and say, I gotta be salt, I gotta be salt, I gotta be light. If, in fact, we are poor in spirit, then we are salt. If we mourn for sin, then we are light. And I think we've lost sight of that. In closing, three things for us to consider. First of all, to be a follower of Jesus means that, in fact, we do have a function. We do have a mission. We are salt, we are light. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. By God's grace, he has called us. He has given us these qualities. Secondly, our life and our conduct, our character, are identified with mission. We are to live our lives in relationship to other people and in relationship to God. If you remember in the Beatitudes, we saw that the first four dealt with our relationship to God, much like the Ten Commandments, and then the second four, our relationship with other people. And lastly, what it means to be a Christian means much more than doing something. Now, what, what do we mean when we speak of function or mission? We are in an election year. We are in the election season. And I've noticed as I've been reading various Christian blogs that they seem to be obsessed with three things. The first is Christian influence. The second is Christian witness. And the third is Christian political capital. And I would tell you that oftentimes, when I read Christian blogs, they don't seem to be very different in terms of strategy. We gotta gotta figure this out. We gotta have a plan. We gotta win. By the way, I don't see the word win anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to be salt, and we're to be light. John Piper has written this recently. He writes about missions, um, and I'll use it for mission or function, but also politics. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of mission is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. From Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Then from Psalm 67, let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Piper says, mission begins and ends in worship. In the same way I would say here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're thinking of salt, we're thinking of light, What's the best strategic place to put light? Where's the best place to put the salt to have influence? No, we've we've messed up already. We're thinking like the world. We're supposed to be distinct from the world and yet we're thinking like the world. Are we poor in spirit? Do we mourn over our sin and the sins of others and the impact of sin on our society? I don't know about you, I'm as likely as anyone else to shake my head when I hear of terrible things that happen do I mourn for what sin has done in people's lives? Are we meek and humble? Do we hunger and thirst for the things we should? Are we merciful? As the followers of Christ, we are to have character. And from that character will flow out our function, that is, of being salt and light. I'm embarrassed to say but we do have books upstairs that will tell you of various strategies where you can have the most impact as a believer then we're just playing by the world's rules we've forgotten the Beatitudes and we're just thinking I have gotta be salt I've gotta be light I've gotta have influence and we've missed the boat Paul wrote to the Colossians people by the way he had never met the city of Colossae. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's not strategy. It's grace. We are always to be seasoned with salt. Let's pray together. Father, we freely confess that we are sinners. And because of that, oftentimes we want to take your place. We think we know what is best. We're like a young child resisting the instruction of a parent, thinking that he or she knows what is best. And even when we come to your word, We think we've got this figured out. We've got it scoped out. And we want to go straight for verses 13 through 16 about being salt and light. We begin to come up with strategies how we can influence the world. And we've glossed over that we are poor in spirit. And that we are to mourn over sin. That we are to be humble. We are far more like the Laodicean Church than we realize. I thank you that whether it's for the first time that we call out to you, or the millionth or the billionth time, you're always there. And we are to acknowledge and confess that apart from you we can do nothing. But because of your grace in our lives, we are salt. And because of your light in our lives, we are light. I thank you that you have not left us alone. You have given us your spirit. May he bring these things to mind in the coming days as we think about them. And then may we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. And come to see that it is our character that matters far more than our mission. Our function flows out of our character not the other way around. We are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And by your grace may this be the case. I thank you for calling us together today to worship you. We give you thanks once again for the wonderful news about Gwen and the baby. Watch over them both. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.